Welcome to this week's episode of the Red Couch Podcast. Alongside me always is my co-host Alex Allen. And our guest today is Chris Hanna, who is part of the Fanshawe Indigenous Strategic Learning uh, uh, Center. Right? Is that correct? I'm part of the Institute of Indigenous Learning. Okay. And my job title is I'm the uh, Indigenous Strategic Learning Guide. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So in recent years, uh, the atrocities of the, of the treatment of natives has tainted the overall image of Indigenous culture and history in the country. And when many Canadians think are asked about what they think about Indigenous culture and history, they tend to think about stuff like that when it comes to their minds. And they tend to forget about the numerous beautiful and rich cultures of Canada's native people. So um, according to the City of London, we are on the lands of the Anishinaabe, the Hondanese, and the Lenape. Is that correct? Close, yeah. So it's the Anishinaabe, Lodonosione, and Lenape peoples. Yeah. Okay. Um, and to, to dive into Native culture, you as well come from the an, an Indigenous background, right? Yeah. So I'm Métis. I'm from uh, Drummond Island in Penetanguishene. Um, Drummond Island is right next to Manitoulin. Um, and so it was... It was part of Canada at one point. It's now part of Michigan. And so there was a large Métis community that lived there. And then when borders changed after the War of 1812, the Canadians, well, I guess the British that the Métis were fighting with were like, oh, we don't want them. So the Americans can have that island. So then all of the Métis community there got displaced. And, and my family and lots of Métis from that region ended up in Penetanguishene. So that's why I say I'm from both. But that's my community. Yeah. So I'm not local, but I'm... Ontario, Michigan, Métis, yeah. Uh, you actually know already so much about that. How, how did you actually come to learn a lot about that? Yeah, so I think like in our communities, it's really important to be able to say who you are and where you're from. And so often if you're meeting an Indigenous person in Canada and you, well, I mean, certainly between ourselves, we'll say, okay, well, where are you from? And it might be, oh, I'm from Kettle Point, which is a local nation, or oh, I'm from uh, Oneida or Six Nations. And so it's important for us to say who we are because where we're from is part of who we are. And so that's something that's often passed down. Um, sometimes you'll say, like, who your family is, too. So, like, I'm from the Dusam and Longlad families, which are Métis from those regions, and so that helps me connect to who my cousins are. So that's all part of an introduction. Um, but then there are also folks who, like you were talking about, some of the historical impacts of colonization in Canada who might not be able to say where they're from because of whether it's 60 Scoop or residential schools or being part of Children's Aid Society. Um, and so there's also lots of reasons why some Indigenous people might not be able to do that. But for me, because I, I'm fortunate to be able to know from my mom who's uh, indigenous and has been able to pass all of that down from my grandpa and, and that side of the family. Yeah. It's actually nice and like having family that will actually still keep some some of that that's going on. Like I know I I come from Scotland so mm -hmm. yeah like my grandmother she always kind of keeping some sort of tradition going on. It's these steak pies that she always likes to yeah. keep bringing on but it was still interesting actually getting to learn and I love taking time just to sit and learn some of the, like the background from like my grandmother 
did you actually grow up actually learning some of this? So yes and no. Um, so in my family, so like, okay, I was born in the 90s, and back then what we always said and what we were always taught was, oh, we're part Indian. That was kind of the terminology that we used at that time. Um, and so I always knew that from my family growing up, but I didn't really know the term Métis. I didn't really know what that all meant or get too deep into my culture outside of knowing that, like, I don't know, when my brother ran track and field, like, my they, like, made moccasins for him to run in, you know, because they were, like, more, they were, like, lighter, you know? like mm -hmm. So there were some little bits and pieces of that. Um, but my mom really got involved in community when I was in high school, actually, um, when I was about 16. And so I started to learn a little bit more then. And then I learned a lot, actually, when I went to post-secondary school, um, which is a time where, like, lots of Indigenous people, if you didn't grow up in it, will start to learn. It's like, you know, for everyone, it's like a time of, like, learning and growing and figuring out about yourself. But for Indigenous people that didn't grow up in the culture or didn't grow up in that knowledge, it's a really cool opportunity to meet other Indigenous people and, like, I don't know, even take a class, you know. So that's really when I started coming into it. And then, I don't know, I've been working with Indigenous communities now for probably 12 to 15 years now. Um, and so that's where a lot of my learning has come from, was just from sitting with other Indigenous people and from, you know, knowledge keepers. And I also married into another Indigenous family. My husband is Métis from Red River, and so I also get to take all of his learnings from his family as well and kind of incorporate that into the, the way that I see the world. So, yeah, that's how I kind of came into it. Different story for everyone. It's interesting, though, like how you actually expanded a bit more of your knowledge and some of like the horizons on that side and just people that you were around. Is that uh, some of the things that you saw, how it kind of benefited to get towards your work experience? Yeah, so like I feel like in Indigenous traditions, we just, we learn from each other. That's really the only like from from like an indigenous perspective, knowledge is shared and it comes in relationship. And so whether that relationship is with each other um, or even like the reason that we tend to look to the natural world a lot is because in most indigenous traditions, when you're looking at a creation story, humans were created last. And so that means that we're still trying to figure it all out, but everything else that was created before us already knows what they're supposed to be doing. So that's why we would look to like, you know, a beaver and like take lessons because beaver already knows what he's doing. And so we can apply those things into our life. You can do that with plants. You can do that with lots of the ideas that everything else already knows what they're doing and us as humans are still trying to figure it out. So knowledge comes in relationship. Um, and I think Western society tends to view that more as like a, especially in certain like lecture style courses, right? Might, you might feel like you have to go and like kind of learn the content on your own. But really, you know, the knowledge that you're getting, whether it's from a textbook or from your teacher, you are still learning in relationship. It just might look a little bit different. But we, we tend to really highly value that in our communities. So I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting to see that, like looking outside of just like, 
our own perspectives and seeing the nature around us, especially when you were saying about the beavers and mm-hmm. it's almost like, would it be almost like a side as well, like learning from them too? Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, I'm going to talk about beaver cause I was talking about beaver in, in another context this morning. Um, but so there's a Anishinaabe concept called the seven grandfather teachings. Um, and so there's, there's things in there, you know, stories about like, honesty and kindness and um, one of them is wisdom and there's an animal that represents each of these and beaver represents wisdom and so beaver is and I'm going to share like my understanding of this story but you might hear from other indigenous people and it might sound different and it might look different but this is my understanding of it Um, so when I look at beaver beaver um, uses his skills right, the big teeth and the, you know, the tail and everything, uses his skills, his talents um, in a sustainable way for the benefit of others. And so if you're going to apply that to, like, wisdom and what we can learn from that, you know, how do we use our talents, our skills, what we have, how do we use that sustainably in a way that's going to carry on into the future, into future generations for the benefit of others? So that's the way that I would apply that. Lots of people are going to apply that differently in different communities, but that's like my understanding of it. So yeah, that's that's just an example of how you might take something from nature and kind of apply it to yourself. But it's the idea that Beaver already knows what he's doing, and so we can learn lots of things from Beaver and and from lots of creation all around us. Wow. <laughs> Coming out here swinging with yeah. the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of rewriting back to like uh, Fanshawe how did you end up here at Fanshawe yeah um, so I I got a job when I was out of so I went to Western went to school at Western uh, I graduated in 2009 which was like not the best time to be graduating from school right yeah. <laughs> recession you guys know because you're about to do the same thing yeah. um, <laughs> So struggled to find work for a little bit and then got a job working for a uh, not-for-profit called Skills Ontario. Um, Fanshawe partners with them. to It's around skilled trades, and so we're participants in competitions and things like that. And there was an Indigenous team because um, Indigenous peoples in Canada are more likely to go into trades and apprenticeships. And so it was my job to kind of travel to different communities and talk about how you actually get into the trades and what that looks like. And so I made a connection with the, uh, it used to be called the First Nation Center here on campus. I made a connection here uh, with the manager. And then when a job came up for the student success advisor position, then I, I was fortunate that I knew about it and I applied and was hired. Um, and then the role changed to the academic advisor. And so I did that for about seven and a half years. And then uh, now I'm doing this role. So I, I like run professional development for people at the college, people that work at the college, whether you're like staff, faculty, administrators, whatever, um, about how to make the college a better place for Indigenous students. Um, And then I also help develop like learning resources. So helping people make like, like right now I'm working on an Indigenous culinary module um, to talk about Indigenous foods for like the culinary program. So they're going to actually make you know, some local First Nations dishes and, and things like that. and But then, you know, take some of the learning around different foods and, and stuff. So that's how I got here and, like, what I, what I do now. 
Do you find that kind of interesting that you're in, that their college is not going to be incorporating indigenous cuisine? What kind of foods would we kind of see in that? Yeah, so um, I was just having a meeting about it this week. And so I think they're going to be learning how to do corn soup. So locally, the uh, Haudenosaunee people were farmers. Um, and corn was a big staple. And so lots of the, the foods that they, that are like more traditional, have corn in them. But it's not like the yellow corn that we would see. The closest thing that uh, folks might heard of, it's called white corn, but um, if you're from like Latin America, uh, like hominy corn is very similar. Um, and so it's, yeah, corn soup will be a big one. It's like uh, white corn, which is grown specially locally um, with kidney beans and like salt pork, and it's like a soup. Uh, but then I think we're also going to be doing strawberry drink. So anyone who's Indigenous who is hearing this, uh, you know what that is, because <laughs> it's like a, a staple, everybody. If there's any kind of like native gathering, there's going to be strawberry drink there. And this it's strawberry season right now, so it's pretty exciting. Um, and then there's going to be a succotash that they were talking about doing, but also incorporating things like wild rice and, you know, local fish like perch. You know, I think there's lots of like indigenous foods that are here that we just kind of think of as North American, but we've been eating them for you know, ever. So there are our local foods, and so it's kind of fun to introduce some of our, our local dishes. Yeah. That's quite interesting. I can't wait. I'm going to dive into that myself if I get a chance to. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, and kind of sending on to the other factor, Nat, it is June, and June is known as Indigenous History Month. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to dive into the origins of how this month came to be, especially for the Indigenous people and its meaning to them. Yeah, so honestly, I'm not very well versed in how the the month came to be. I will say that it is like it's it's an opportunity for more for non-indigenous people to learn. That's kind of the way that I think most of us perceive it. Um, and so what it means for us is that often we get quite busy during this month um, with people requesting for us to come in and talk and share our stories. Um, and so part of that is, part of that is like, I don't know, opening your minds to like what Indigenous people in Canada have experienced. Um, and that likely looks very, very different from what you or your family have experienced if you are not Indigenous. And so I think it's a good opportunity for folks to reflect on, like, when did your family come to Canada or when did you come to Canada, whether that was, like, two months ago or, like, maybe three, four hundred years ago. You know, like, my the white side of my family has been here since... Uh, Jacques Cartier <laughs> so like a long long time so on one side I'm like very heavy settler family been here for a long time and then on the other side it's indigenous right so it's important to think about like when your family came to Canada why was that you know was that for more opportunities was it escaping you know religious persecution was it fleeing World War II was it to come here for school why did you come here? What did that look like for your family? What opportunities did they have? What opportunities do you have? And at the same time, what was going on for Indigenous peoples during that time period? I think that's really important to think about, right? So 
you know, if you were coming here after or like during or right before World War II, you know, what was happening for indigenous peoples at that time? I mean, you were deep into residential schools at that point, um, or if not residential schools, then day schools. And if you've never heard of a day school, like Google it, it's, it's really interesting and a really important part of Canadian history that isn't talked about too much. Um, at that point in time, it was like often illegal for First Nations people to use um, like mechanical farming equipment. Um, it was illegal for us to attend post-secondary school. So there are all of these things, right, where people may have come here for opportunities and, and access them and now have wonderful full lives and generations of, of access to these things, but it wasn't the same for First Nations and Métis and Inuit people here during that same time period. And even now, right, things are, there are still disparities that exist in Canada. And right. so with it being Indigenous History Month, I'd encourage everyone to kind of do that reflection. And if you're a recent immigrant to Canada, it's also important to think about what is still going on and really important for everyone that's here at this point. There, there are still disparities in Canada that exist for Indigenous people. Right. And so I wanted to bring up about that is the education factor. It's, it's a good month for everyone to educate themselves uh, on Indigenous history. I can, I can see even Alex, we were talking about this a bit yesterday, and we were saying during growing up, especially in our elementary school years, we never really talked about Indigenous history or culture. Mm -hmm. And um, now I was going to say, should we infuse Indigenous history into early education, and how could we see that as playing a role in reconciliation after what we've recently come across in Canadian history? Yeah, I think that would be good, um, because I think it's, it's, sometimes people worry about teaching young children about the history, and, and, and I can understand that to some extent, but I don't think it's too early to start introducing the idea that there are other people here that maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but there are other people here that live differently and that experience different things. There are ways to talk about things that are helpful and good learning opportunities for even very young children. And so I do think it's really important. I know when I went through school, mind you, this was in Ohio, but, but the sense that I got from going through elementary school and talking about you know Native Americans down in the States was that there weren't any left. That like me and my family were the most like native people left. And that was really kind of shocking and a, and a bit devastating. And then, you know, I get older and I meet other people and I'm like, oh, well that wasn't true. But that was like, that was the sense that I got going through the elementary school system. And so that's really detrimental to only talk about indigenous people as a historical people because we are contemporary I mean we're still here we're at the college there's lots of students here there are staff there are faculty that are indigenous here right there's administrators and so I think it's important to also learn that we are also a contemporary people and that you might run into us in fact we're like one in five Canadians so if you know like 20 people like <laughs> you know you know us. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I know when I was younger, and I mean, I'm 
a first generation Canadian on my dad's side because he came here from Scotland. So mm-hmm. I know growing up through school, like Canada was always new to me and I always wanted to like learn more about what was going on here in Canada because I felt like it was sort of something I should be doing. And I, I remember going to this one event because I live out in Kitchener okay. area. Yeah. Um, and when I was younger, we went to this one event and I, when, when I was young, I had no clue what it was. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, what, what is this? And growing up, then I started to recall that like event. I was like, oh, this is actually something for us kids to learn about like indigenous history. Mm-hmm. But at the time, we never really got talked much about it. It was just, it was a field trip. We were, we were going on a field trip and I, I was, I'm so unsure of like, why, like, are we actually not getting more educated about this? Like what, what else should we be actually adding yeah. in this school system? Well, I think honestly at this point, I think in the past there was some, some malice and some racism. I think at this point it's a lot of fear, right? People are scared about not saying the right things. People are scared to talk about things that they're, they don't know everything about. But the thing is, as non-Indigenous people, you're never going to know everything about us. I I don't know everything about us because I'm just one person, you know. And so I think fear gets in the way a lot of having conversations around why are you going to a powwow for a field trip? You know, why are we wearing orange shirt days? Or why are we wearing orange shirts on September 30th, right? So there's like this the easy things that you can do without any of the context. And I think that's really unfortunate. But, you know, have the conversation. That's what should be happening in elementary schools. Have the conversation. Why does it matter that we're talking about this? Mm-hmm. i got to say, on my own time, um, elementary school, even high school as well, I took, I'm a huge history buff, and I'm a, I, took, I took a lot of interest to, like, as we mentioned before, the War of 1812, um, even the Red River Rebellion, for instance. Mm-hmm. and We call it the resistance. The resistance. The Red bad. River resistance. No, it's okay. That's a really good, like, point, though, too, right? The way that things are framed in history is very different depending on what community you're from. Yeah. Exactly, and that's the interesting <laughs> thing is, and that's one person I want to kind of talk on is the Red River resistance was the, the, the main figure was Louis Riel. Mm-hmm. And learning about it in high school, they didn't talk about him in a positive light. And... Coming from a Greek background, we had people who were like Louis Riel, and they fought for kind of like the same image, but they paint them as heroes, and they painted Louis Riel as 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 a menace to Canadians at that time, which mm-hmm. I found kind of awkward in that sense. And um, everyone else just like, they kind of just let it pass on by them, and I think it's kind of important mm-hmm. that we kind of change the way people have seen him or people like him through history and kind of paint them in a better light, if that makes sense. Totally. Well, and Louis Riel was, uh, when you look at it, really was a founding father of Canada. Yes. Because he signed the agreement that brought Manitoba into Canada as part of the nation. And that was the very first treaty that ever happened with Métis peoples. My husband is from Red River, right? He's from that community. And so Louis Riel, for us, is a hero. And really, I think he probably should be for lots of Canadians. But, you know, he was... French speaking, and he was, you know, Catholic ish. You know, Metis have a lot of uh, additions to Catholicism to make it, you know, a little bit more indigenous. Um, and and he was brown, right? And so all of those things combined doesn't 
I think Quebec has a different version of Louis Riel yeah. than English-speaking Canada does, especially Ontario. And so I think that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's a very important historical figure in Canadian history that is often kind of maligned because of who he was. Yeah. And to touch on to the topic of Métis culture as well, mm -hmm. I, in high school we kind of did talk about in World Religions, we did talk about Indigenous culture, certain ceremonies and ritual. I don't want to call them, these are appropriate to call them rituals. Yeah. Rituals, but um, also dances as well. What can, what are some things that you have seen that is celebrating the Métis culture? Yeah, so, um, you know, First Nations are really heavily associated with drums. We use drums as well, but we also use fiddles. <laughs> so there's like, for for us, there's, um, there's certain like, fiddlers and fiddle music and different dances that we would do. Um, you know, we have, like, Louis Riel is perhaps a pipe carrier. Gabriel Dumont, one of his accomplices, you know, also a pipe carrier, right? And so there are lots of shared traditions that we have with First Nations, but there are some of our own pieces as well. So we would still go do sweats. We would still um, go do sun dance ceremony. Um, but there are some pieces we, we pray a little bit differently and, you know, like lots of different indigenous cultures, but ours tend to be a little bit more, uh, like depending on who you're talking to, perhaps a little bit more Christian, but not always. So it just depends. It seems so nice. So like, especially when you're talking about the fiddles, like it just seems like something so nice and elegant. I mean, mm -hmm. I know from Scotland, we just have the obnoxious bagpipes wherever <laughs> you go. Yeah. Because even with Greek culture, like I see, I've seen videos and I've been to, a, I think I've been to one or two powwows in my time in elementary school because uh, I was so in, enamored by, by indigenous culture. Um, certain dances, like the same, like because Greek culture as well, they have certain dances that have significant meanings behind them. It's kind of cool to see that that traditions have, they've carried on with so many different cultures. And that was really cool to see over here in Canada as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's cool. It's, it's nice to see. I don't know, the way that different people do things. Yeah. yeah. Absorbing different uh, cultures as well. It's just cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, education, like, is educating everyone about this is, like, such a key part. And, I mean, even in the elementary side, like, it, it's good to have those discussions. But, like, how do we actually keep going further with it? I mean, here, here mm -hmm. at Fanshawe, what is the, sort of the main focus for you when you're here? So, I mean, in my role, my main focus is improving student outcomes, right? So, and Indigenous student outcomes, right? So, right now there are graduation gaps between First Nation Métis Inuit students and other domestic students. Um, and in theory, in theory, right, they should have had the same opportunities. So, why are they not successful here? we tend to look at that as a, as a system problem. It's not a problem like inherent within us, right? It's a problem with the way that we interact with the system as it exists now. So how can we adjust the system to make it more inclusive and, and more welcoming to indigenous students? And we tend to, I feel very strongly that what we do to support indigenous students is likely going to have a ripple benefit effect for lots of other students as well. Things like flexibility and, you know, allowing students to kind of move through more at their own pace. So that's kind of what I would like to see at the college. But I think from like a education and from a person to person basis, I think it would be really nice for people to take a look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
report, and there are a bunch of recommendations on what you can do to move towards reconciliation, some that are very personal and some that are for the media. So for all of you guys in the room, that's a really good place to start for you. But see what's in there and see how you can apply that to actually improve things. I think learning is really important, but like I said earlier, you're never going to have all of the right answers to make a difference. It's important to just try anyways. So just start doing something, and that can be a good place to find out maybe what you could do. And for our viewers who are who are watching right now, um, if they want to get involved in the community and educate themselves this month or even just any time of the year about Indigenous culture, do you know of any places in the community that are good places to kind of look or start from? Yeah, so there are some organizations in this city that are like open to um, non-Indigenous people coming at LOSA has some events um, that you could participate in. But I would also say like, you know, Go to the internet. These are all on your phones all the time anyways, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Institute of Indigenous Learning has like a very thorough uh, YouTube channel and you can learn all sorts of things on there. Things from, you can listen to knowledge keepers, you can learn about what smudging is, you can hear from Indigenous students, you can hear what it means to different people to actually be Indigenous. And so I think it's really important that what you're doing is hearing from authentic Indigenous voices as you're going and doing your learning. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, it's been quite an interesting conversation we've had here. Thank you for coming in and talking with of us. Course. That has been this week's episode of the Red, uh, Red Couch Podcast. You can find us uh, online at YouTube um, and Twitter, and also subscribe to our newsletter. I'm Constantinos Drosos, alongside my host, Alex Island. Thank you very much for watching. <laughs>